Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. <laughs> when you're ready, sir, I'll get it. I'll get, I'll get started. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Michael Girdley of Juris Software. It's a hyper niche software acquisition business. It's absolutely fascinating. I'll be discussing it with Michael right after this. <laughs> Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. I, I have a weird background that I went to school on the East Coast, so I hung out with a bunch of people from New Jersey, so I'm very direct. And then I went to the Bay Area where, like, nobody's direct. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, then I, I hung out and worked with a bunch of Berkeley hippies for, like, five years and then came back to San Antonio where people are neither hippies nor direct. So it's, like, <laughs> like a crazy the, place. What's the personality in San Antonio? Uh, it's very much, uh, I don't know if you've spent time in Houston, it's very much kind of a Houston down to earth, very nice, kind people. Um, but very much determined, um, in, in terms of how they approach life. The other thing that that's weird about San Antonio, we have almost 70% of the population is Hispanic. So it's like a huge Mexican American influence. So a lot of the things that are kind of natural in terms of like the Hispanic sense of humor and stuff like that. You know, when I lived in the Bay Area, like people don't joke around like the Mexican Americans do. And I, I would like talk to a Chinese American person and they'd be like, that's not funny. I'm like, well, the Mexicans thought it was hilarious, you know. So so we have that, which is kind of a, an interesting impact on the culture as well. But, you know, it's a great place. I, I personally love living out in the boondocks in terms of, you know, talking to people from L.A. and New York and stuff. It's just it's much more fun to be a big fish in a small pond. So what were you doing in the Bay Area? Uh, so, uh, started working for other people. So started as an engineer and then really realized that I was never going to be a great engineer. And I also liked people too much. What, what sort of so engineering? software engineering, or... software engineering, I've almost always been a software guy, except for a few, uh, a few detours, but I ended up working for, um, a couple different companies. One, uh, RSA, you might've heard of it, uh, a big security company. Uh, now it's mostly a, com a security conference with a, a company attached to it. Uh, but back when they were in the patent trolling business, I worked for them, and that was my the first job. For a while, didn't they? The, uh, they may still have make the FOBs. So the FOBs are actually the company. They came from the company that bought RSA. Okay. So, so RSA itself was this amazing business that there's this thing called the RSA algorithm, which came out of these three MIT professors, and they had a patent on this thing. So they went and got everybody to use that for SSL and all the underlying security for the internet. It's asymmetric encryption. And basically what they were able to do is just extort out of corporate America hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh, until the patent ran out. And so the company that bought the patent troll company was – uh, a company called Secure ID, which did the FOBs, right. and then they took the RSA name. So, yeah, that was my first exposure to like unfair games and like <laughs> the businesses I I wish I owned. So, so you were you were um, you a software engineer there, or you a product guy there? Uh, initially, a software guy, 
uh, in terms of engineering. I started, uh, we were selling a, a product specifically towards developers. So I started in a role that was engineering, working with other companies, developers. Um, so almost a solutions engineering role. And then I, I moved into a marketing role there. And then I ended up leaving that company to go work at a middleware company called BEA, which is now part of Oracle. And I was the product manager for a product called WebLogic. When were you at BEA? Uh, 98 through 99 through 2003. Because there was BEA, I, I had some friends who worked at Plumtree who got taken mm -hmm. over by BEA. And uh, one of them is Jay, who's the president of uh, uh, the big Australian um, software engineer. It's just the big software firm is just slipping my mind to make Jira. And uh, you know who I'm talking about? Oh, uh, Jira, like J-R-I, Atlassian is who you're talking Atlassian, about? Atlassian, yeah, yeah, he's at he's Atlassian. He came through Plumtree and BEA, worked with a few friends of mine, Prasanis Rakanta, who went to, worked for Peter Thiel in his macro hedge fund for a while. Yeah. I don't know if you crossed over with those guys or not. No, they may have, I think, you know, Plumtree was probably one of the acquisitions after I had left or towards the end of when I was there. Um, yeah, my last role there was like a strategy role, which like most strategy roles, I had a hard time figuring out what to do with a strategy person because the CEO wants to be in charge of strategy. So in retrospect, whenever I hear somebody say like, I'm going to take a strategy role, I'm like, don't do it. Bad idea. <laughs> it's a great way to get fired. Unless you're just going to repeat what the CEO tells you, don't do it. How did you switch over to the investment side? Um, so, you know, I, I, that first phase was working for other people in my career. The second phase was working, um, being a, a CEO. And I've, I realized that where I want to live is kind of at the intersection of ops and um, asset allocation. Like I, I don't really want to do either. I don't find either one by itself very, very interesting. And the way I started to get into that was uh, around 2012, I started to do angel investing. And and that was really to where, you know, I, I've never had any interest in public equities. and I know other people really like public markets. I find them incredibly boring. Um, but private equities are much more interesting. So I started doing angel investing, specifically giving, you know, ten and twenty five thousand dollar checks to uh, to dudes and ladies with laptops and PowerPoints. And what anything interesting come out of that? Yeah, I ended up uh, investing in a handful of companies, um, no unicorns out of the bunch, but uh, invested in a company uh, here locally that's hired like 60 people, you know, over the past five years. So, so that's pretty exciting. Um, you know, and then I've had some duds. Uh, I had one company that gave me back half my money. I was pretty excited about that. Uh, you know, that I think I was the only investor when they call and they're like, I have great news. The company sold for pennies on the dollar. And you're going to get half your money back. And I was like, That's yes, <laughs> yes, this is a huge win. Even the so, is a win. Any yeah, any, win. Even crystallizing totally, the tax loss is a win. Totally, totally the case. So I was, you know, they were like, why are you so excited? I was like, well, your other investors will be after they get some more bumps and bruises. So, um, but yeah, a handful, you know, the, the company uh, that uh, I'm very proud of, this one locally that does the, uh, they basically t do telemetry systems for vending machines. Really very boring business, but it turns out most vending machines were built before the 80s and they have no ability to take credit cards or you don't even know what's going on in them. So, you know, they've built a whole business around that and turned it into micro markets and all this stuff. So, yeah, they're called Parallel Systems. They're here in San Antonio. Totally fun little business. So, how do you transition from uh, sort of part-time angel investor to, is it Dura Software? Mm -hmm. 
So Dura, Dura is what we're working on now. So I, I co-founded that with uh, a couple of guys who are former rackers. So one's a CFO and one's the CEO. Um, and, you know, it, it, it kind of puts me in the right role for me, which is board chairman, uh, which is, you know, I want to live in the asset allocation world a little bit and I want to live a little bit in the ops world. So, you know, what what I think I do pretty well is uh, is finding kind of the right opportunities uh, around that and then convening really the right team. So, you know, my my co-founder, Paul, uh, also invested in the business and he is the CEO. Um, and I think, you know, what I saw with Dura is there was this whole asset class of these little software businesses that by themselves were amazing businesses, but nobody was really uh, set up to exploit them. And so we went with this idea of going and acquiring and building a biz big business out of all these little tiny software companies. So uh what is it is it constellation like is it at acquisition level or is it more uh expansion capital or where, where do you sort of fit into the ecosystem yeah we we a good way to think about us is we do what constellation does but where they do a couple things different than us so um, first of all constellation is very upfront about saying they're in the vertical market software business um, so we're, we're not stupid enough to try to compete with with mark leonard and those guys their cost of capital is much better than ours will ever be um, but we saw that there's this other category of software that is more horizontally focused um, we call it hyper niche software and that that's branding so we do what we do um, but basically we go for these very niche use cases that uh, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, they're never going to want to be in that business because it's maybe a $10 million TAM. So, you know, for example, our, our very first acquisition of a hyper niche product was this, um, was this piece of software that's used to manage very large fleet of very large fleets of multi user, multi purpose, single user devices. So like kiosk and digital signs. So like, if you're going to have 50,000 of these things, we went and bought this company does a few million a year in revenue uh, and and brought them into the fold and deployed our operating model there. So we're, we're, we're more of a horizontal play, whereas Constellation and other folks that are other software accumulators, they focus on vertical. So you guys are operating these businesses when you acquire them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's where I think we're able to unlock the value. Um, so, you know, over the past 20 years, it's gotten really easy to build a software business from a technology standpoint. Uh, AWS, all the tool sets, all the libraries, uh, they make it really easy to do that. But what hasn't gotten any easier is those technologists who build those businesses, it hasn't gotten any easier for them to operate them. Sales is even harder than it used to be. Uh, you know, it, it's not like you can just spam the world or buy display ads and hope your customers are going to magically walk in so the the insight there is you know because we're operators and and my co-founder paul he used to run all of rackspace's support like he understands how to run teams so what we do is we bring these businesses in and they all need some work and we deploy kind of our our operational excellence into them and then turn them into you know nice little businesses that we keep and grow forever so let's just talk about what's the difference between you say you describe it as hyper niche and you're prepared to look at the horizontal market. And it, it, folks who listen to this show will know uh, that Constellation focuses on the VMS, the vertical. Can you just talk a little bit about the difference between uh, vertical and horizontal? 
Yeah. So, um, so vertical software is typically focused on a specific industry. So, uh, Constellation, which is a great business, you know, they have a whole B two G department or B two G division, or they may have uh, a healthcare division, which is just software that aims at uh, healthcare uh, type. Of, of that industry, right? So uh, could, that could be anything from practice management software to you know benefits management to any of that kind of stuff. So they focus there, and and that's fine. So you know our horizontal play realizes that in the vast world of software, there are a bunch of things that are horizontal across all these industries that aren't specific to one, but have a common use case that you'll see across all of those. Like so uh, software or something like that. For example, or you can have, uh, yeah, like for a hyper niche example, there would be like, let's say you have compliance software that automatically scans all your financial statements to make sure that you're compliant with stuff, right? That would be a very hyper niche type use case. Or what I talked about before, everybody needs kiosks or these kind of large scale digital signage deployments. So our, our product Moki, which is device management for those type of deployments like that is a very narrow kind of thing that spans across industries so that's what a horizontal thing is it goes across multiple industries is that what brent b sure describes as the tastes like chicken layer of businesses that we're trying to for sure yeah but we're like interested in like the wishbone part that's like unique to a chicken right it's just yeah. like okay because then you don't ever have to worry about is google going to come in and, and crush you right because they're we're not going to out engineer them and and that's not really intention anyway so when did you start up and what was the what was the what was the plan when you got going yeah so um we started about two years ago now so you know i think uh, the the original plan was uh, let's create a set of incremental experiments that we're going to run in the market and really try to understand, like, is there something here? And and I'm a huge believer whenever you are going to ask other people to eventually buy into what you're doing, the best thing you can do is put your own capital to work, or at, at least at a meaningful level. So um, what Paul and I did, and, and we had gotten introduced by a, a great guy here in San Antonio, a man named Graham Weston, who's like the, the former chairman of Rackspace, kind of the godfather of the tech scene here as, as big as it is and he said hey Gridley, you need to meet this guy paul and we went and had lunch and i was like hey i'm working on a project i think there's a business opportunity around these these hyper niche software companies do you want to work on it with me and uh so he and i just were like okay you have some money i have some money uh let's go out and commit it and buy one and see if it works and so we spent about six months trying to find one and uh ended up ended up buying the first one called moki what, what makes it hyper niche yeah, so um, we define that as a whole set of characteristics there. So uh, first of all, it's it's mission critical, uh, meaning that we don't want to buy anything that's going to go away uh, during a recession. Um, so second of all, um, we focus only on B2B software. So we're not interested in B2C. Uh, it's not that those aren't good businesses, but we're just, I find them very boring. So um, maybe, maybe, Maybe I'd be a better capital allocator if I wasn't so emotional about certain things, but I just I'm not interested in working on boring stuff. Um, second of all, uh, it's it's a very narrow use case, right? That we see that uh, it spans multiple industries. It's not something that's going away. Uh, and then lastly, it fits a certain size. So you know we're not interested in buying into 500 million dollar TAMs. Uh, total addressable markets like we are totally happy with being the number one software vendor in an eight million dollar TAM. Right. And there's some logic to that because 
$8 million TAMs aren't interesting to PE, they aren't interesting to VCs, and they sure as heck aren't interested to the big boys. And how, how are you determining that the TAM is only $8 million? It, is it literally like a geographical location or is it, uh, how, how does it work? Uh, sometimes it's really easy. You can do things like, uh, we, we've looked at software that specifically only sells to education departments at US states. Right. Uh, you can figure that out pretty pretty easily. Um, you know, one of the, the the second acquisition we did is actually back office email automation software for maritime shippers, and specifically maritime shippers that ship bulk stuff, not container shippers. So, like, it's pretty easy to figure out the TAM when you know there's only 85 customers in the whole world, and the potential spend for each one is is whatever, right? Just that's multiplication. I, even I could do that. So, uh, how do you? Uh undertake that first acquisition how did you look for it how did you validate it assess it when you got it can you just walk through that process yeah well what we did early on was uh, pretty straightforward we did list building um, so uh, I, I hired some dudes on Upwork to build a list of companies. Uh, anybody that's built a sales autom- sales machine, you know, that's pretty standard. Uh, got up a list of about 5,000 companies, and we just started going through them one at a time, uh, doing emails and saying, hey, I looked at your company. It looks interesting. Are you interested in selling? And I, I would do probably 50 to 75 of those a day. Um, and then based on that, we would, you know, just kind of run people through a sales funnel. Uh, so an inverse, uh, what, what any acquirer does. So um, use some email automation stuff to, to do those emails. Uh, those would turn into introductory calls. Um, and those inter- early introductory calls are really interesting because at the time we're trying to figure out what the market is. And those early calls, I think, are really interesting because, you know, after the fifth one where I ended up talking to a seller and I discover there's this vein of people who will sell, but only for a crazy price. Well, I'm not interested in buying anything for a crazy price. So then we start to move people after those introductory calls through through the rest of the process. Well, let's talk about a crazy price. What's how do you know it's a crazy price and a good price? What's the how do you how do you make that assessment? Yeah, well, I think just like uh, any other uh, investor or, or capital allocator, you want to have a margin of safety. Um, but at a very basic level, you can put together, you know, a, a discounted cash flow model on on these businesses. They're pretty easy to model out. Um, we, we know how to do that just because we've spent a lot of time in business and also dealing with these types of software companies now. But based on that, like, it, it's not very exciting for me to go pay. 20 times EBITDA for something that's not growing quickly. Like I can 5%, like I, I, I get that, get that other places if I really want to put in the S and P. So what's a good price? Uh, you know, I think like most acquirers we're we're looking to see a reasonable IRR, um, somewhere, you know, somewhere above that 20 to 25% return rate. Um, and that gives us a margin of safety. Um, you know, part of the reason we, we keep that number pretty high, like most private equity does, uh, is because I want to have the opportunity to be 100% wrong and still turn out okay. So if your worst case is that you end up in teens or 10 or 12% IRR, well, that's okay, right? You, and you, you at least aren't going to get, uh, your risk of ruin is minimized. So you, you, in the in the first acquisition, you you built this list. You were contacting fifty to seventy five folks a day. You find there's a very large number probably who don't want to sell. That's the biggest number. Then there's a very large number who will sell on very uh, generous terms to them. And then you find some folks who are prepared to enter into a transaction. How do you 
whittle that down and get to the point that you you find this is the one we want to really run the test case on? Yeah. Well, we did go through our very first one. We ended up signing an LOI on it. Um, and, and to get to that LOI, so basically the process is you have the initial calls with folks. And then that initial call for us was really about just trying to get them to invest the time to give us the information that they need to tell us so we can value the business and make them an offer. Um, and I know you'll be shocked by this, but there is an inverse relationship to the size of the business and how decent their financials are. Uh, it, it's also an inverse relationship to how good of an investment it ends up being based on how bad the stuff is prepared. So there's a number of times- The preparation, the better the investment. Almost always, you know, it's, it's that way. So if you see a beautiful, you know, SIM uh, from a broker, like, and who's running a great process, like, that's probably going to be a, you know, it's that. probably going to, you're going to, you're going to pay for that, you know, one way or another. And, and we're happy to get our hands dirty and do the work. So, you know, what we've tried to do is we distill everything down to just a core set of information that we need to see uh, and use that to try to, to come up with an approximation of what the business would look like when we have it. So, um, you know, kind of the foundations of that are the financials as much as they have them, whether that's cash or accrual, uh, a customer list, usually anonymized. Um, so we, we don't ask people to give us the name. So they're actual customers, but we're interested year by year revenue breakdown of these folks. Roughly and then how the, much each customer is, is generating, how concentrated they are, how reliant they are on their biggest customer and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, you'll see a lot of these folks that are out there who try to pitch themselves as product companies. And they're really just a consultancy with, yeah. with like, I've seen it before where it's like 60% of our revenue is these two customers. And we have 45 more customers that comprise the other 40%. Like that's not a business. That's a consultancy. So anyway, so we get that, those three things, we get the, the P and L, uh, as best they have it. Sometimes it's bank statements. Secondarily is the customer list, ideally uh, anonymized, broken down by year in terms of revenue. And then the last thing that gives you a, a picture for the business is what is the employee, who are the employees anonymized and how much are they making, right? And that gives you a feeling for how the, the business is run. Um, and most of these little software businesses, you're, you're looking for rules of thumb around things like customer concentration, uh, revenue per employee, you know, a lot of times you see these businesses that should be profitable, but the reason they're not is because they have twice as many people as they should, right? right? That's not a business, that's a charity. So we <laughs> talked about that as a possibility too. And then you use that, that's the stuff you can really use to figure out how the model of the business will work out inside of, you know, our operating model. And so that's what we did with Moki. Like we figure out an operating model, put together a financial model, and then use that to come back and say, okay, here's what we can pay for the business to, and, and you present an LOI to them at that point. And how many acquisitions have you undertaken over the last two years? Uh, we have three that have closed uh, and we have two that are preparing to close. And so the, the rough numbers are, say you start out with a list of 5,000, have you worked your way through the entire list to this point? Uh, our list has actually gotten really big. Um, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm actually super optimistic about this space, right? So we talked about this idea that very, very few people have the structure like we do to, to do these acquisitions. Most people don't want to be in three and $5 million a year software businesses. Most people don't have the execution ability and we could talk about that. Uh, that's kind of one of the big barriers to entry here. Um, the number of people that talk about doing acquisitions that actually do them is hugely different. And then 
it, it turns out the third thing is the number of uh, the number of these software companies is much bigger than anybody really imagines. Um, so one one of the databases that we use uh, has over a hundred thousand hundred thousand software companies globally that are under five million in revenue. Wow. So. Yeah, so we've kind of just barely scratched the surface, um, but nobody really cares about them, which well, we do. Well, let's talk about the execute. What's the execution uh, differentiated between you and some of the folks who are just talking about it? Yeah. Oh, in terms of getting deals done, or, or just you, just to, to follow on from your thought a little bit earlier. Oh, that that there's a huge gulf gap between the number of people who talk about doing acquisitions and the ones that actually do it. Sure. Um, yeah. Look, I, I, it's it's kind of one of those things where, like, when I talk to people, they're like, "Okay, have you done any deals?" And yeah, like, well, we've done we've done three, and we've got two more in progress. Like, they're actually kind of shocked because so many people just talk. Um, but look, I think it's a combination of uh, it's a unique combination of things. Like, you have to be very comfortable with uh, making making an uncertain bet on an acquisition. I mean, this is these are big checks we're writing two, five, seven million dollar checks, right? Uh, some of it's our own money. Uh, you have to be very comfortable with that, but at the same time, you have to be grounded enough to be able to operate these things well. Um, and we bring in a whole operational model that we've created and standardized across this specific type of stuff. But it, you know, psychologically asking why most people talk about stuff and never do it, I don't really know why, because that just seems so, oh, my camera turned off. I'm back, I think, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually I went through this whole process to get a fancy DSLR hooked up. The yeah, problem is it shuts, it shuts off every 30 minutes. So <laughs> I don't look as good as you, but I'm trying. Um, yeah, so psychologically, I just don't. That just seems so weird to me. I, I, I don't know why people talk about doing stuff and talk it to death. I, I much more prefer going, you know, so. So you guys, you, you have this huge list, you validate it down, you undertake the first acquisition, and then you, you presumably hadn't built this uh, operating standardized checklist or operating uh, standard that you're trying to get. To, this is sort of all learned from the acquisition of this first company. Yeah. So some of it is from the acquisition. So I'd say the software specific stuff is there. Um, you know, what, what I, one of the things I brought is kind of what we talked about with, uh, Brent's idea of everybody has the same kind of 10 problems. Um, so I did bring an operating model that, that is standardized that we use for everything around hiring, you know, culture measurement, employee measurement, uh, how we run team meetings, how we do strategy, uh, all of that stuff is an operating model that that I learned in my small business days that we've brought in and we use and we basically it allows us to just treat every single little software business, even though it has its own CEO who is running it very entrepreneurially. We give them the playbook that they have to run. So all they do is they're not worried about how they're going to measure you know, customer satisfaction, they're worried about how they're going to make their customers happy, right, which right. are two different things. So, so we give them a playbook. And, and that's kind of that niche that we fit in, we're an accumulator of these software assets, with a bit of standardization in terms of the centralizing of stuff. But at the same time, we're very entrepreneurial that each business has its own head, but we give them kind of the, the playbook that they need to run. And so are you uh, so once you once you acquire them, you said they're running on. They're giving you bank statements in 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 the acquisition, but you're presumably you're running. You, you then make them hook up to QuickBooks or something like that, so you can monitor that all remotely. Or how, how does that work? Is it as standardized as that? Yeah. So 
what we do is uh, our our finance and accounting is centralized. So that's part of the power of our operating model, which is unlike a fund, we're a centralized operating company. So there's a lot of advantages to doing it that way. So we're a C-Corp. So what we can do is we can take some of those general purpose things like finance, HR, accounting, uh, facilities, and we put that all into a centralized thing that lives in uh, the third co-founder's office, the, the CFO. And so he is the one running all of that finance and accounting for the individual businesses because we don't want the CEOs to be spending their time worrying about that. So so that's how we transition them oftentimes from having accounting that's the how much is in my checkbook accounting to like how do we have audited professional P&L statements that are trackable on a quarterly if not monthly basis. And then the CEO is freed up presumably they're primarily strategy and sales. Is that the sort of is that where you're looking to, for the CEOs to go? Yeah. So, so our model is actually, uh, we look for a very specific type of person. So we look for a man or a woman that we call kind of a cusper. Uh, and what it, what it turns out is a lot of those people have been very deep in being a, uh, a, a specialist in a specific functional area inside of a corporation. So they may have been uh, head of sales or they may have been head of customer support or ops or any of those type things, uh, but they are interested in getting to a general management and CEO type role. So we give them almost the my first CEO job, uh, which is we're gonna take away some of the stuff that's kind of boring, but we're gonna let you really cut your teeth to expand. And and our, our view is that, you know, people who are making that transition, the, the thing you have to do is you have to go from being very deep in one functional area to being kind of deep in everything, right? You need to be able to talk about finance. You need to be able to talk about engineering. You need to be able to talk to engineers, even though you come from a sales role. And and my business partner and I, Paul, we really enjoy coaching these people. So we want to develop them into really good CEOs. So that's part of the value prop for them is, okay, you're going to be entrepreneurial. You're going to have your P&L. You're going to own all these responsibilities. We're going to measure the heck out of you. We're going to give you, we're going to give you training wheels, but this is your chance to grow from that functional area specialist into somebody that is a general purpose CEO. And do you have some sort of playbook for them or is it a case by case basis where you guys do look at this particular business has this particular opportunity and we want you to pursue that opportunity. Yeah. So every acquisition will have an investing thesis for us. You know, we'll ask ourselves, okay, do what changes do we want to make? Right. And it could be as simple as like, you know what you guys should consider doing? marketing right that's sometimes sometimes that is the or or we've bought uh, one of the business we bought didn't even actually have a uh incentive plan for the sales reps like have you ever heard of a sales rep never having a commission like so guess what the sales reps did they just were sitting around on their butt all day uh anyway so after we bought that one like the sales growth momentum per month like tripled because it was like hey we're gonna align some incentives here um so anyway, to, to, to come back to your question, like we try to give them that input and then make a clean transition to that CEO of the business and say, okay, now you own this, right? And we want to give you, here's what we think, but we want to give you the authority and the responsibility to make those changes uh, to, to really run the business like you want to. Um, and, and the way we'll make that transition super smooth is, you know, we have three CEOs in the company right now that report to Paul, our CEO, and those folks will be involved almost always in the acquisition of the new business. Uh, so like if we're going to give that to one of the CEOs as a second, business then you know they'll have an opportunity to be part of the identifying the problem before they're expected to solve it so they're not necessarily 
are coming from inside the business when you acquire them you're acquiring the business and sourcing the ceo to, to operate that business separately right yeah and so uh if we have if we have if we're buying a distressed or a business that's we consider not performing as well as it could uh our default model is that the ceos of these companies or the ownership of the companies never come with right and and so they'll they like they like that because we're unique because the leadership isn't expected to stay on, uh, and then we're the only buyer because of our permanent hold model that they can trust is going to take care of their legacy and their people, right? So if PE buys you or Strategics buy you, good chance your product's going to get killed in the next two years. That's just the way that works. Um, so they like they like us for that reason. So you know we'll have our own thesis about the way the company should work. And by design, if somebody had their old way of doing it for the past twenty years, it's not going to work uh, to bring them in and keep doing the same thing that that we want to do differently. What have you learned over the last few years of of doing these acquisitions? What was the what's the difference between the reality of it and what you sort of the thesis of it before you started? Yeah, man, l lots of stuff. <laughs> um, you know, I think that early on we were uh, much more trusting of what people's documents said of them. Uh, you know, I talked about this inverse relationship of how much you can trust financial statements and that sort of thing. Like, like that's that's a hard, hard, hard learned lesson. And actually, our our very first deal that we were about to do, um, you know, we we ended up pulling the plug on it because they were misrepresenting to us what reality was like the business wasn't actually flat it was actually shrinking 20 percent a quarter uh so like that kind of changed the entire entire universe of those things how did they present uh, it as flat when it was actually shrinking so here's the funny thing these folks uh these folks are oftentimes selling because they're running their business poorly and they don't know they don't know they're lying to you about their small business Right. Like like as you know, I think for folks that live in the, the public equity world, like you're accustomed to this level of sophistication and audits and all that stuff. Like it's important to remember, like most small businesses are run by so and so with their checkbook. Right. And a lot of these people are doing all kinds of crazy financial shenanigans like factoring and right. like they have no they have no clue. They're not lying to you. They're just they truly believe they're doing much better than they are. Right. And so they're not, they're not using anything like even just QuickBooks just to see, which you can track pretty easily. It's all automated in QuickBooks. That, that, that's, you know, or if they are using QuickBooks, it's garbage in, garbage out. Stuff just radically, you know, radically mischaracterized. Um, you know, the idea of revenue recognition, like, no way. <laughs> good luck. Good luck with some of that stuff. But they've so. grown these to reasonably sizable businesses because they're um, – I saw on your website you're you're talking about two to five million dollars in mm -hmm. in revenue. So that's that's a very successful small business. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know, it, 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 there is this idea that you know, in in growing a business, the CEOs have to change, and a lot of these CEOs and owners reach a point where they're just not comfortable. You know, at, at the very first level, zero to one dollar, you're kind of the doer and the seller, and then from one to five million or or, or one dollar to one million, you become a manager, and then above that, you're a systems builder, and above that, you're a business builder, above ten million, and 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 so on. A lot of these folks are never really comfortable making those transitions and they just get stuck and you'll see these businesses that say at a million we're supposed to start to deploy systems and they never do 
and the businesses just kind of churn along. And software is kind of a rewarding thing, right? If you're selling something at 80 to 85% gross margins, that's recurring revenue that's very sticky with your customers, that covers up like a lot of sins for these folks. So that's my explanation of why some of these businesses get bigger, even though they're not really run super well, is, um, is software is a pretty good business to be in. So that's kind of interesting. So you often you find these things, they've got to the, they've got to the, the peak of some phase, but they just can't transition beyond that phase to whatever the next level is. And, and you guys have that, uh, you've, because you've been at much, much bigger organizations, you know how to take them from one phase to the next or get the person who can run it at that systems phase or that business builder phase. Right. Well, in, in the playbook we make the make everybody use actually forces you to start to create systems. So, um, you know, we give them a system for hiring. We give them a system for, you know, how you're going to do your um, strategic planning, how you're going to do your quarterly goals. We give you a system that forces you to use those things. So even if people on the our CEO level or the existing company don't have that, they really don't have any choice because uh, we're just like, well, this is this is the way it's going to be. And that, that, that system, that'd be a great book sometime that you could, you could publish unless you want to keep that private for the, for the firm. No, no, I, uh, it's on my website. You can go, it's girdly.com is my website. I published the whole thing. It's actually, so the, the genesis of what I call the playbook was about five years ago. Like I made some really bad hires and I, I'm a member of like a CEO group here called Vistage. And I went to everybody in the group and I was like, how do I not hire so terribly? And everybody else goes, we don't know. We hire terribly too. <laughs> and I ended up talking to another business partner of mine and he's like, you should check out this thing called top grading. And, uh, so I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but but it's, nice. it's changed. It, it's wonderful. It is a wonderful system for hiring. Um, and so that started me on a quest to go out and say, like, why am I solving all of these problems that other people have solved? If there's a system out there for hiring, why don't I just go find the best of that thing and use it? If there's a system out there for strategic planning for SMBs, I can't be the only person that's ever had that. So I spent two years basically going through and identifying the best of breed of every single one of these systems. And we've codified it in this thing we call the playbook. And yeah, I published publish it on my website it's just like different people's books and different people's systems well that's brilliant i'll make sure i link to that in the show notes that sounds very interesting i'd love to have a look at that just um, just taking a step back a little bit what's your overall investment philosophy yeah well i think i i think that i really like to play games uh that are unfair to me um so i you know i, I talked about being bored by public public equities. Like there are so many people out there that I feel like are much smarter than me. Uh, and it's kind of like the same attitude I have towards chess. Like I really like chess. One of the things I like to do is watch chess videos on YouTube. Um, but I'm never going to be amazing, right? I don't think I have the ability and a good enough memory to be memory to be a grandmaster or even a master. Do you have an idea um, what, you, what are you playing off at the moment? I have no idea. Do you, I don't play, even play. If you play on chess.com, it'll give you, it'll give you a rating. <laughs> I think I think the highest ever is 1700. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. strong. That's yeah. strongish. That's yeah. that's about right. Yeah. Well, kudos to you. Well, I I have so it's one of my limitations in life actually. I'm a very future-oriented, high-level thinker, so I have a hard time remembering details. Like I'm terrible with people's names. Um, so, you know, it's it's one of those things where I want to pick the games that I'm going to invest in 
where I can have an unfair thing. I'm also a really bad loser. Like I don't, I don't like to lose. So, you know, investing, I start to look for things like this opportunity where I can bring something unique, where, where we can be the only player for acquiring these types of software companies and where I can bring like the kind of uh, investment I've made in learning how to do business as well uh, and the network I have and the reputation I have and bring all those together to play a game that's really unfair because that's much more fun than playing something that is, uh, I would say, much more fair. You don't want to compete on a level, level playing field, which is a little bit like swimming, which I saw you're a swimmer. I was a swimmer. What, what, did, you, what did you compete in? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was a middle distance swimmer. Uh, I have freestyler and breaststroke. So. Yeah, I did, so I did you, the IM 2 and 400 and the freestyle as well, but not, not, as, not as well. Uh, you know, that was, that was an amazing experience for me. I was a college swimmer and, you know, I looked at the people who were like really gifted and the fastest people on the team. And I was that guy who barely walked onto the team. I I'm six foot five, like blonde hair. Like I look like, you know, Matt Biondi, whatever. Right. At the time. Now, now I look like fat middle-aged man, but back at the time, like I, I was the one that was really intimidating when we'd go to the, the college swim meets, but I was not very fast. And so I was, it was such a good, like character builder to be a crappy athlete. Like, like that's why I love, like when I find people who've been like that, not very gifted, 11th man on the basketball team who the coach liked because he just worked his butt off um like those are great people to hire and and i feel like i had that kind of same build up which is you know i was an extremely good mediocre swimmer but it was i got so much out of being not very good if that makes sense yeah i i competed in a few uh 1500s and had a lot more success in 1500s just because nobody wanted to do it unfortunately <laughs> a couple of guys in australia who had i know unfortunately at my university too and they competed in uh, won gold medals over like three Olympics. So there was just no chance of even making the university team, even in that yeah. event. Very, very tough. So yeah, you're, well, you're still swimming? Destroys your shoulders when you're, when uh, you're young, makes it hard when you're older. Yeah. No, I actually have, uh, it's one of my weird genetic oddities. I have hyperflexible, um, hyperflexible shoulders. So I've never had shoulder problems. I do have some knee and ankle problems, but that's about it. Um, I, I've actually, I, I find swimming now incredibly boring. Yeah. I want to hang out with people. Um, you know, I'm, I, I think I might be somewhere on the spectrum, but I really, I'm like somewhere on the spectrum that I really like people. And, uh, so I actually go to group fitness classes like all the time. That's what I do. Cause I just, I love going there and it's the same people and I love talking to them. It's the same reason I like going to an office and like working with people. Like I, I like, being around people under the right scenarios so i don't swim anymore so what's the what's the longer term uh plan for dura you, you've acquired three you've got two more in the hopper you're two years in it sounds like you're speeding up a little bit is that the plan just to keep on building and compounding over time yeah so we we see ourselves as a, a compounder i mean that's that's the cool thing about um, what we're doing, you know, these businesses are profitable when we have them, right? They're operating uh, at some version of the rule of forty. Are you, are you familiar with that? Yeah, but but uh, it's the it's the sales and the yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, NOI slash EBITDA, which are pretty much the same in in software businesses, uh, uh, plus the growth rate year over year in a very high performing software company is over forty. Right. So uh, there are there are some. 
um, like a friend startup is over a hundred. That's pretty cool. As, when he told me that, I was like, oh, it's pretty awesome. Um, but um, yeah, so that's that's one of the measurements we use to measure the overall health of the business is, okay, is your growth rate plus your EBITDA somewhere in the vicinity of 40? Um, so yeah, so you know, the, the cool thing is because all these businesses also, we mandate that they're going to be profitable. Like we, we're, we also do something crazy in tech, which is we just say we're not going to lose money. Um, I know that's insane if you're a VC. It's like, well, but, but we make them, we make all these businesses run profitably. And so the idea being that um, that free cash we can then use and reinvest and compound back into doing more acquisitions. So, you know, the long term vision is to just keep doing what we're doing, right? Um, growing a little bit organically, but then growing inorganically by redeploying our free cash. Uh, and basically just keep at the same pace we're doing. Let's do three to four acquisitions per year. Let's keep integrating those. Let's do them really well. Use the free clash to keep doing that um, and you can see kind of the the end goal if you after 10 years you acquire 10 to 15 million dollars a year in revenue uh, pretty soon you're a pretty big company and you can see what happens with you know 150 million dollar year software companies and how the public markets value those so we're playing the long-term game here um, you know we plan on staying staying where we are for a long time but the end goal is to build a really huge company uh, by accumulating a lot of these little companies and then to list that at, at some stage uh, look, I, uh, you know, I've I've spent time hanging out with VCs, and and I'm a part-time partner at a, a venture capital fund. The one lesson I've learned there is predicting what the future is going to look like 10 years from now in terms of an exit is really hard to do. I just know that if we keep doing what we're doing and executing the way we've been executing, we'll be an extremely valuable thing to somebody, whether that's a public market or a private equity or heck, like at some point we just say, okay, we're not going to reinvest cash anymore and start writing people checks. All, all those are options. The, the key thing really to focus on here is just how do we maximize and create value by, you know, by building a great business. And that's, that's where we're really focused. Do you have any, uh, you're looking at the landscape for these sort of businesses, uh, software as a service type businesses have got these extreme valuations on the public markets and presumably that's filtered down into the private markets as well. Is that, is that trajectory going to persist? Do you see it slowing down? What, what how do you, how do you think about purchase multiples for, for these companies? Yeah. Well, I think what's what's happened in the past six months that's been really interesting is we kind of we divide the market into four different segments. So there's high growth software businesses of this size, and those are the things that VCs want to give money to or PE wants to buy. Uh, we're not interested in paying ten or twelve times, you know, trailing twelve months revenue, right? We don't we don't do that. Then there's the next category that are just pretty darn good businesses, right? They're already running pretty well. The owners know what they're doing. They're maybe you know generating 20 to 25% EBITDA, growing 10 to 15% a year. Nice, nice businesses. We don't play there as well. You know, those tend to sell for three, four, five, six times ARR. And there are buyers that pay up for that stuff. We don't do that. Where we play is in the, the bottom half of the market, and there's two categories there. One is distressed. And distressed is obviously they got to sell for some reason. And then there's uh, things that are just underperforming, right? They're maybe break even. They're not doing very well. And so the, the market, as we're seeing with these businesses, is actually nuanced depending upon what's happening at each stage. So VC has slowed down. So those guys are all slowing their growth rate. And so their multiples are coming down a bit. And then for the past six months, up until about a month and a half ago, we didn't see a distressed company for almost a half a year. And then and then and then well COVID happened and we started to see distressed stuff and it was early on it was like stuff selling it to airlines or restaurants and that kind of stuff so you know it 
it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but I think the point being that you asked kind of the macro level and how it's trickling down. I think the much bigger impact on each of these businesses is the psychology of what's happening in the economy as a whole is trickling up much faster than we're seeing any impact of what you know Zoom selling for 50 times trailing 12 months or whatever. So just just sorry, say that, say that last part again. You, you, what, what, are you, what are you seeing in that last little part? Yeah, I think that because these small businesses are so much closer to the ground level, right. uh, we see the impact of the day-to-day being much more impactful than a trickle-down effect from the big markets. So that makes sense. You're seeing that, that these are the the, un, the the smaller businesses are much more impacted by totally uh, by by the shutdown and by COVID. For that, and then also the psychology. Right. They a, a lot of these folks like it's hard to value these little businesses. So uh, it, it's one of the challenges we've tried to overcome is almost every single small software company owner has some friend who read some TechCrunch article that says that so and you know businesses are trading for this. And I, I can just tell you they're not like they're not, um, you know, that just because one broker does one deal at eight times revenue doesn't mean your little little software business that's not growing and it's not profitable deserves eight times revenue. I'm sorry. It just doesn't work that way. So so besides those things on the ground that you're seeing, there's also the psychology, which is, you know, which is a factor of these things being owner operated, which is very different than the public markets. So there's an education process, presumably, with these guys, or it just you, you can't you can't get together, bid and ask are just too far apart. There's you know the the number one reason we don't end up doing a transaction is bid and ask are too far apart for sure, um, and that's okay. I mean, if if folks don't have to sell and they want to get a certain number, um, you know, I have a, a friend running a SaaS business that's in this size that wants five times revenue. I, I don't think he deserves it, but <laughs> but he. Pay. Yeah, you just got to make a market of one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've we've done some white papers and stuff to try to talk to people about, you know, how what are the things that you should think about that are impacting negatively the value of your business? Um, you know, everything from the quality of revenue to geographic concentration. I mean, there's like 40 different things that can take your business from, say, trading at two times revenue or three times revenue down to trading at one times revenue. Um, and, you know, because these people aren't necessarily in the day-to-day of valuing businesses all the time, they don't realize the impact of that on on us, right? Um, so, you know, but yeah, in the end, like, it's it's tough because we're trying to educate them from an adversarial place, right? Which is right. as a buyer. So a lot of times you just got to move on until you find somebody that's the in the right mindset to do a transaction. So it's a messy it's a messy market for sure. I get the sense that there's uh, it's an increasingly popular area to be an acquirer. That there are lots of search funds around, and there are lots of smaller private equity firms around that are looking to do these small acquisitions. Do you see that competition or or is it increasing or is it, it does it, what do you see? Um, the biggest transition that's happened is, uh, there's two. So one is the, um, the number of tire kickers that have come out. Um, so I've just heard horror stories about these search funds who, you know, we'll, we'll put in a bid for something and they'll put in a bid at three times what we put in. And I'm just like that. There's no way that underwrites, no way. And then six months later, that same, uh, that same seller will come back and be like, Hey, you know, um, didn't work out with those two college kids. Couldn't find <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, we're back on yeah. the market. Um, but I think, you know, I think the second thing and why I'm very op- uh, optimistic about this market is unlike VC, 
when you buy a business and acquire it, you own it. You have to like, so <laughs> yeah, you, you got, you just bought yourself a bunch of problems. Um, so, you know, it makes it very hard for this market to get super saturated quickly. And the other thing you're seeing is, uh, you know, a, a stratification and a nichification of the acquirers, right? So the stuff we like to buy is totally different than say what tiny likes to buy. Like right. we just, we don't, we don't compete with them because like, I think I've seen them in a deal once just because we like to do B2B software and he likes to do fire and forget type stuff. And our operating model is different than his operating model. And our, our financial backing is different than his. So, you know, that then there's probably five or six other players that are that are kind of figuring out their own little niche, whether that's developer tools or it's uh, there's another one doing kind of e-commerce stuff. We don't like that stuff. So um, that that is also something that's been happening in the past few years. People nichifying for sure. Are you comfortable talking about how you financed? It was your own money initially. Have you raised outside capital? Yeah, um, yeah. So we uh, we raised uh, we bought we did the first acquisition with our own money. Uh, so uh, put our own skin in the game, and then we used that to raise about twelve million dollars um, from folks. We had an oversubscribe round uh, last summer uh, that we've then used to do that. Um, these businesses are also uh, you can finance them with bank debt. So we're able to we work with a local bank here that gives us nice terms. Um, so we're actually able to lever them up to increase returns and kind of um, do that from a um, capital utilization standpoint. So you're looking to conserve as much equity as you can in the acquisitions, put in some debt, the business. So it's like a, everyone is like a small leverage buyer. Do they expected to pay it back, or you want them, you don't you don't mind? They can carry the debt for as long as they want. How do you, how do you think about the financing? Yeah. So um, we are. That's part of the power of our model because we're a C-Corp. We're borrowing at the C-Corp level. So we get better borrowing because we can accumulate all the debt together. We can actually add, also add together the profits to um, enable us to, to borrow better. Um, and, and we're at the level now where you kind of get over that uh, that EBITDA hurdle where you can start to go to the big national banks and not just necessarily do the small business type loans. So all, all that's been really good. So, I mean, in terms of thinking about it, like we will um, – we borrow at the, the top level, but then we think about the leverage on a deal by deal basis. Uh, and we're typically doing an appropriate level of, you know, two to three turns of EBITDA in terms of borrowing, depending upon what makes sense for the business and their history and stuff like that. Do you expect to do more capital raisings on the equity side or do you think it'll be self-financing at, at this stage? Yeah, so the inflection point is coming up to where the self-financing happens in the next nine months or so. Um, so some of it is just kind of watching and seeing what's happening. Um, you know, right now we have cash in the bank and we're still working to deploy it. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens. But right now we're, we're not fundraising. That's a nice place to be, particularly given where the market is. Uh, for sure. It also really helps with recruiting. Uh, because a lot of times we're recruiting people who have been laid off from startups or high risk ventures. And we're like, Hey, like we're profitable and here's our bank account. And, uh, it, it gives us a set of people that are interested in working with us that, uh, have been burned by stuff falling apart and whatever. So, you know, it's, it's part of the crazy idea we have in tech to actually make profits. Who, who knew? Uh, any, uh, final thoughts, Michael, anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to discuss? No, I uh, I was actually kind of nervous about doing today. You're the first podcast I've been on where I've read read your book, so uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, so uh, I I but yeah, it's it's turned out super well. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about something I'm really proud of. My, my absolute pleasure. It was absolutely fascinating. If if folks want to uh, follow along with what you're doing 
or get in contact with you? How do they go about doing that? Uh, definitely check me out on Twitter. Uh, it's M Girdley. So M like Michael and Girdley, my last name. Uh, I have uh, really gotten into Twitter, especially more since COVID started. So uh, I'd love to connect with folks there and hear what you think about what we're doing. And your, your website, Dura Software? Yeah, Dura.software uh, for the company. Um, you can keep up with us there. Uh, and uh, all... your, your personal blog for the, uh, for the, for the system. Yeah, it's uh, girdley.com, G-I-R-D-L-E-Y.com. So. That, that's fantastic. Michael Girdley, Dura Software, thank you very much. 